0: As you know by now, I'm a big proponent of CBD to tonify the endocannabinoid system. I've found that it helps people relax and can support restful sleep, a real breakthrough in herbal products. The CBD brand that I take personally and recommend to my patients is Plus CBD from CV Sciences, which is now proud to introduce a new innovation. Plus CBD, Daily Balance, THC-free. Daily Balance is a daily use supplement that provides the benefits of CBD without the concern of other cannabinoids like THC causing unwanted effects. Daily Balance contains the purest form of hemp-derived CBD in high concentrations to help you overcome intense challenges to mental and physical well-being. All Plus CBD products are backed by science with clinically researched active ingredients. To learn more and to order, visit pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman and use coupon code HOFFMAN30 for 30% off. That's pluscbdoil.com slash Hoffman for Plus CBD's new daily balance THC-free line of oil, soft gels, and gummies. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and today's podcast is going to focus on the environment and some really substantial threats to our health uh, from our ever increasingly polluted environment. Uh, the book is called Sicker, Fatter, Poorer. The subtitle, The Urgent Threat of Hormone-Disrupting Chemicals to Our Health and Future and What We Can Do About It. Our guest is Dr. Leo Trasandi. He's an internationally renowned leader in children's environmental health. Uh, he's associate professor and vice chair for research at the Department of Pediatrics at NYU here in New York City. And he's uh, been ubiquitous in the media, appearing on the Today Show, CNN, NPR, CBS News. Uh, he has also been uh, quoted extensively in New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times. Uh, he's a fellow New Yorker, and he's an M.D., uh and also uh is very involved in the field of uh, of uh, public health. Uh in fact Dr. Trisandi you're you're an MD uh but you also enrolled at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. What why is it that you pursued um that dual track career?
1: Well I applied to medical school during the Ben Clinton healthcare debate around universal health care and I was getting asked all sorts of questions about my perspectives regarding the proposal. And there was a point where I stopped um, and rather than give a rote answer um, or what might be expected, I asked the interviewer, well, what training do you get in health policy? And I don't think I got into that in medical school because I don't think that response was well received. <laughs> okay. But uh, suffice it to say that Um, That got me thinking to the need to get more specific training given the rapidly evolving nature of health policy and its broader impact on all that we do in medicine. As much as we like to say we do so much with one patient at a time, Mm -hmm. there are many other factors that influence us uh, on a broader scale. And so that was my signal to take a detour between my third and fourth year of medical school and get some training at the Kennedy School of Government where I had the privilege of not being just exposed to health policy people, but to a broader array of people across perspectives and specialties. And that really infected me, if you will, or exposed me from an environmental perspective to um, the consequences of healthcare policy in people's lives, and that drove me to pursue Healthcare policy is a broader career. Uh, so, really so you became an advocate.
0: You became an so, in other words, instead of uh, leveraging, uh, you know, one patient uh, after another in a single office encounter, you you decided to uh, have a broader uh, impact on uh, the health of, you know, perhaps uh, thousands and millions with the work you're doing.
1: I wouldn't quite call myself an advocate, but I do appreciate why you're using that word. I think I would characterize myself as uh, someone who's trying to have broader impact um, beyond what I can do uh, in individual healthcare delivery. It's so important, but there are so many factors beyond our control and so many of the decisions that influence those factors are done without a proper perspective of the scientific and medical reality. So it's important that we, uh, as physicians, lend our voice to that kind of dialogue. It's not that others can't have that same influence on the dialogue. It's just that we generally don't weigh in the way we could.
0: Well, we're kindred spirits in that regard. And the the book title is really intriguing. Sicker, Fatter, Poorer. Uh, what? Where were you going with that concept? Because I think there's a lot of uh, embedded meaning in, in those uh, few words.
1: Let's start, let's start with the sicker part. Um, so, there's increasing evidence, especially over the past two decades, that some 1,000 synthetic chemicals commonly found in the environment influence the basic molecular signals our body uses for basic bodily functions. Everything from body temperature, metabolism, salt, sugar, and even sex. Um, the evidence is strongest for four categories of chemicals. The flame retardants used in electronics, furniture, pesticides, which are used in agriculture, bisphenols used in aluminum can linings and thermal paper receipts, and phthalates, which are used in personal care products, cosmetics, and food packaging. And the consequences of these exposures are profound and broad. They don't just span the things I experience in my pediatric practice, but they run the entire gamut of the life course everything from developmental disabilities and effects on developing brains of kids to obesity, diabetes, male and female reproductive consequences. And that's the thicker part. And the fatter really refers to the fact that there is a special, rapidly increasing body of evidence that suggests that chemicals can literally make us fatter. Um, There's some 50 synthetic chemicals that just over the past couple decades have been recognized as obesogens, independent of diet and physical activity, which are so important. Mm -hmm. Nothing that I'm saying here undermines the importance of diet and physical activity as the major drivers of the obesity and diabetes epidemics we're seeing in the United States and across developed countries today. But increasingly, we're understanding that synthetic chemicals are an important and under-recognized third factor. In that epidemic so the prototype chemical obesogen is something called bisphenol A or BPA Mm. Um, as I mentioned it's used in aluminum cans and thermal paper receipts and it makes fat cells bigger it disrupts the function of a protein that protects the heart called adiponectin and as a synthetic estrogen it can have sex specific effects on body mass especially during vulnerable windows of development such as puberty so the reality is that there are multiple molecular mechanisms by which these chemicals can make us fatter. A group of chemicals that I haven't mentioned that's hit the scene recently are these forever chemicals. The perfluoroalkyl substances are mm-hmm. PFOA. They make materials nonstick and they contribute water and oil repellency to various products in our daily lives, including athletic wear.
0: Right, so, so they're not just in pots and pans, the so-called Teflon pans, but they're also in, in wrappers often, you know, so that things don't uh, adhere to the to the wrapping, you know, because if it was just ordinary paper wrapping that's not chemically treated, uh, maybe it would peel off so nicely.
1: Right. Imagine a piece of pizza you take from the pizzeria. It's in a box. The reason you don't literally have oil on your hands by the time you get home is... That material is lined with this oil repellent material hmm. to keep the oil from dripping out of the box in the first place. Um, and so these products are generally designed with reasonable intentions. They're designed for product benefits, but they haven't been properly tested in many cases for their consequences on the endocrine system. And we used to think that the dose made the proverbial poison, if you will, mm-hmm. that lower levels of these exposures didn't matter. It's something akin to everything in moderation. But we now realize that the dose doesn't always make the poison. Um, we know that chemicals, especially at very low doses of exposure, can have the biggest changes on the human body with respect to their functionality. Um, and it's not unrealistic when you consider the fact that natural hormones occur in our body at very low levels and they're designed Micromolecular
0: levels, just a few very very tiny concentrations can cause profound changes, correct?
1: Right, and those are normal, natural hormones Mm -hmm. that our body produces on its own for basic molecular functions. And so the reality is that these chemicals should not surprise anyone as having their effects at these very low levels of exposure. It's also the reality that we have increasing evidence that chemicals can have effects that increase and then decrease. A little bit of the roller coaster ride, um, if you will. It's called non-monotonicity. It's something that makes people shiver in the usual toxicology community. But the reality is that you can have different switches, molecular switches in the body that shut things off and shut things down. And they affect people at In different ways, at lower and higher levels of exposure, and that's important because it makes the way we usually think about regulating these chemicals mm-hmm. go out the window because we they usually they get
0: tested they they're uh, safety tested and then they establish a threshold they said well bel-, you know we don't see any problems below a certain level in a you know perhaps a healthy, robust population when testing these chemicals <laughs> one by one singly, but maybe they have a synergy one plus one equals ten.
1: Absolutely. And that's the complicating part when we think about policy decisions and how to regulate these exposures and decide if we would accept a small amount of an exposure in a product that gets into your food, for example, or absorbs into your body some other way. Um, And that really is the theme that starts to shift us from sicker to fatter to poorer. So ultimately, these chemicals are used in products because it has value when those products are added. And there, unfortunately, are people who are hurt by these chemical exposures who don't participate in the sale or purchase of these materials in the first place. And that's really where the problem starts to come in. Um, we've done a series of studies looking at only a few of the chemicals of concern and found that the cost of these exposures in the U.S. alone are $340 billion a year. That's 2.3% of our gross domestic product. Mm -hmm. And as I hinted at, these are based on only less than 5% of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. Furthermore, they're based on a subset of diseases due to those same chemicals and a subset of costs due to those diseases, due to those few chemicals we studied. That means that this estimate is underestimating the actual total cost of endocrine-disrupting chemicals. So when people bring up, well, it's too costly to replace one chemical to the other, there are real and substantial benefits, not only to human health, but to our economy by proactively interceding and preventing these exposures in the first place.
0: You know, and when I see poor, I, I think of you know, our economy in, in some ways is the haves and the have-nots. You know, there's, you know, a lot of wealth in America, but the distribution of wealth seems to be uh, skewed towards, uh, you know, ultra wealthy individuals and people who are, you know, barely scraping by. But it it seems to me that the the burden of these environmental chemicals may be borne uh, to a larger extent by poorer people because they can't. Uh, shop at Whole Foods and get the organic natural products. Maybe also culturally, from an educational standpoint, they're less attuned to the hazards of environmental uh, chemicals. They live in parts of uh, the city that uh, may be more polluted. Uh, And they're also the least capable of bearing the uh, costs, the extraordinary medical costs of uh, say, a cancer diagnosis.
1: Well, the reality is that low-income minority populations have greater exposure to these chemicals, in part for the reasons that you described. We've done a series of studies suggesting that, indeed, racial and ethnic minorities, Hispanic and African-American populations predominantly, suffer the greatest burden of and costs as a result of these exposures. So it's a bit of double jeopardy. You usually think of healthcare access or other factors driving disparities in, in health. But the reality is that environmental factors are a major explanation of those disparities. Now, that doesn't mean that we should throw up our hands or, or lose hope because a lot of the things that we can talk about with regard to preventing these exposures can be done by everyone. Hmm. Nothing that I'm going to suggest. is not a luxury necessarily. Yeah. Right. These are safe and simple steps that we can take and it doesn't have to break the bank or require a PhD in chemistry.
0: You beautifully uh, illustrate this uh, phenomenon uh, by contrasting a playground in 1962. You know, you take us back in time in your time machine to 1962 to watch kids playing in a playground, and then you contrast it to the present situation uh, in 2019. That's a span of just over 50 years. What's changed, and can you describe that scenario?
1: We've had an increasing use of synthetic chemicals in that environment and at the same time have seen a spike in multiple chronic conditions. Think about obesity and kids. There's been a tripling in the rates of childhood obesity. As a pediatric resident in the late 90s, I saw firsthand the influx of type 2 diabetes. We used to think of type 1 diabetes as a childhood disease, Mm -hmm, and type 2 as the adult version. We used to call it maturity-onset
0: diabetes because it was only adults who got it.
1: Yes, and now, unfortunately, we think of type 2 as something that crosses the age divide. It affects everyone, and that's because of the obesity epidemic, but also because of chemicals That disrupt basic metabolic functions. We've also seen increases in certain cancers. Endometriosis and fibroids are all too common, not to mention the rates of developmental disabilities that affect too many children. Um, And we're talking about things that don't just affect kids and moms, they affect adults and men and and folks who are not trying to have um, families. We're talking about in the case of the phthalates, chemicals that directly disrupt the male sex hormone, testosterone. Now, we think of that as something more for um, procreating or mm-hmm. for libido, but literally, low T is a marker for or predictor of adult cardiovascular disease, low T being low testosterone. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing is that this literally can be a life or death matter. If you have phthalates disrupting the function of the male sex hormone, you ultimately can connect the dots all the way to adult men having cardiovascular disease and stroke to the tune of 10,000 U.S. men who die each year as a result of phthalate exposures costing the economy $9 billion in lost economic productivity. So the story here is not just something for moms and kids to think about. It really affects all of us of all ages.
0: And and what about the phenomenon of uh, earlier and earlier puberty? Because, uh, you know, if you go back to colonial records, you'll see that, uh, you know, uh, girls wrote in their diaries and they would note that they had the onset of their first uh, menstrual period uh, the age of 16, 17, sometimes 18. Nowadays, it's not uncommon to see uh, eight, nine-year-old girls uh, developing uh, secondary sex characteristics and beginning to menstruate. Uh, early puberty, is that some, a sign that maybe we're exposed to too many gender-bending uh, chemicals?
1: Well, it's a complicated story to interpret because there are many factors that have changed over that same time period. Diet, obesity being a factor that also has to be um, in the mix. And the reality is at the same time that synthetic chemicals can upregulate or downregulate male or female sex hormones. And when you have that change in regulation, it can set the stage for earlier or later puberty. Early puberty in young girls is a well-known risk factor for breast cancer. So this is not just something that affects timing of development, this can have long-term consequences reverberating for generations, generation to come. And so these chemical exposures um, are tough to interpret, but they are part of the story when it comes to early puberty.
0: And when you're talking about developmental disorders, specifically you're talking about the higher incidence of uh, autism, attention deficit disorder, bipolar disorder uh, among kids, so That's this, the, and depression, anxiety, that's certainly soaring. There may be cultural factors, there may be dietary factors. Uh, but could chemicals be implicated in, in terms of brain function?
1: There's no doubt that there are many factors driving the increase in autism, among them being the trend in diagnosis that could be part of the story there. But it's hard to write away completely that entire story uh, without considering environmental factors. And in in studies that look at individual people, we find effects not just on the developing brains of kids in the form of cognitive potential, but um, in terms of the clinically significant autism and attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. The reason behind that is that thyroid hormone is... A key factor in brain development it's really the growth factor of the developing brains of kids mm-hmm. and during pregnancy the baby doesn't make thyroid hormone on her his own until roughly mm-hmm. the second trimester of pregnancy and even in the clinically normal range you can have subtle shifts in thyroid hormone function producing these long-term consequences in the form of autism attention deficit hyperactivity and cognitive deficits, and we know that flame retardants and pesticides directly impair those functions. Um, and there are multiple studies that have not just shown IQ test changes, but changes in magnetic resonance imaging and directly measured brains of these kids um, with matching effects. They're the parts of the brains that are disrupted that are the same as what you would expect with neuropsychological changes.
0: Mm-hmm. You, this, uh became a term that's sort of a trash talk term, cretinism. You know, you're a cretin, you know, it's kind of an insult. But in medical school, we learned that that was the consequence of a mother uh, being undiagnosed with uh, hypothyroidism and then giving birth to a baby uh, who has um, uh, intellectual uh, impairment and uh, sort of gross features and a large tongue. Uh, so this this can be induced chemically through blocking the action of thyroid hormones in the mother.
1: Yes. These chemicals can literally produce consequences that affect one kid at a time. But the reality is that a child comes back home with one less IQ point, maybe mom or dad might not notice, the psychologist might not notice, the pediatrician might not notice. But, and if a hundred thousand kids come back with one less IQ point, the entire economy notices. Mm-hmm. We know that each IQ point is roughly worth a two percent change in a child's lifetime economic productivity. And if each kid makes about a million dollars over <laughs> her or his lifetime on average, two percent of a million dollars is twenty thousand dollars.
0: It's poor. And then you multiply you know, it's that. The, it's about the GNP. You know, the gross national product.
1: Exactly. and You have 4 million kids born each year. That means you have a lot of zeros on the right side of the equation as a result. And so that is a big driver of these large economic consequences that we see as a result of endocrine disrupting chemicals. Mm. And, and in that regard, there's something important to emphasize we haven't talked as much about, which is that policy predicts exposure, exposure contributes to disease, and disease ultimately costs us all. In the U.S., we've had a legacy where we've added flame retardants to every conceivable piece Mm -hmm. of furniture from the 1970s until about 2015.
0: In a misguided effort to protect children from fire hazards, yeah?
1: That's right. And California did it. Liberal California was the state that implemented this regulation with good intentions. But we've had a legacy. Where we have had the highest levels of flame retardants in the U.S. population compared to any other country in the world,
0: mm-hmm. and this and, is not just—we measure in the in the blood, in the urine, uh, in the breast milk. We we see those levels. They're not just you know in the clothing uh, or the furniture, but actually they get absorbed.
1: That's right, and ultimately impair the thyroid hormone functioning in the brains of these kids, um, and Europe regulated these chemicals much more proactively. They never required them to be added. So Europeans have much lower levels. And the cost of flame retardant exposures in the U.S. is roughly $240 billion a year. In Europe, it's about $9 billion mm. a year. Mm. And the only good news for the U.S. is that we the opposite of the story for pesticides. We, through the Food Quality Protection Act, required an additional safety factor be added for this category of of chemicals used in agriculture to protect kids. And as a result, we haven't used as much organophosphate pesticide, even though organic has not been as popular in the U.S. compared to Europe. That means that Europeans have had higher levels of these exposures. And so the costs in Europe are $121 billion. The costs in the U.S. are $47 billion. So, again, this goes back to policy predicting exposure, exposure contributing to disease, and disease ultimately affecting us all.
0: Okay. Well, we've laid the groundwork for our discussion in Part 2. And in Part 2, I want to talk uh, more. You know, we pointed out many of the hazards. We can uh, extend our discussion about that but i also want to focus on solutions you know what can we do individually what can we do uh, as uh, voters and as concerned citizens uh to uh, stem the tide of uh environmental pollutants that uh, and and deliberately added uh, ingredients in foods and uh in uh produce that make us sicker fatter and poorer that's the title of a book by today's guest he's Dr Leo Tresandi. I'm Dr. Ronald Hoffman, and this is the Intelligent Medicine Podcast.